Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. Wastewater tests indicate another COVID wave is breaking. The university called the amount of virus that they were seeing unprecedented. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Andrew Bowen. This is KPBS Midday Edition. San Diego's Climate Equity Index may be leaving out needy communities. When you go on the ground, you know, boots on the ground in these neighborhoods, you can start to see why this is so difficult to actually have the data reflect maybe what's actually happening on the ground in the communities. Looking for a last-minute gift? Local bookstores have suggestions. And more darkness in the mistletoe as we continue our exploration of film noir women. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Donations come in many forms, a sustaining membership, a one-time gift, even that extra vehicle you no longer need. Learn more about the advantages of donating a vehicle. Here's how. Go to kpbs.careasy.org or call 877-KPBS-CAR. Researchers at UC San Diego say that a COVID surge this winter is not just a possibility. It's already here, and they're basing their projection on the amount of virus detected in the county's wastewater. Researchers have been monitoring the viral levels in wastewater for months now, and they say the amount detected this weekend is the highest since last February. Preliminary molecular testing indicates the wastewater contains both the Delta and Omicron variants. Joining me is San Diego Union-Tribune biotech reporter Jonathan Wosen. Jonathan, welcome. Good to be with you. From your report, it sounds like the amount of virus discovered was shocking to the researchers. Is that a fair statement? It is a fair statement. It might actually be an understatement, though, to be honest. So this announcement from UC San Diego came out at around 10:40 a.m. on a Saturday. Uh, you know, universities usually don't make weekend announcements, but the language in there was pretty clear and pretty concerning. The university called the amount of virus that they were seeing unprecedented. It's definitely the highest level they've seen in wastewater since February, possibly since since further back than that. Although it would take some extra analysis for them to be sure of that. I've spoke with. Dr. Christopher Longhurst, who's UC San Diego Health's uh, chief information officer, who basically said, you know, we have this major surge coming and to buckle up and be ready for that. Also spoke with Rob Knight, who's a gut bacteria and microbiome expert at UCSD and one of the leaders of that wastewater surveillance effort. Uh, He had some pretty stark language too. He said, you know, there's going to be an unprecedented surge in cases. It's already in motion, but the felt that there was still an opportunity to keep uh, what they're seeing in the wastewater and 
out of the hospitals if we're able to respond quickly enough and and, uh, strongly enough. Jonathan, can you remind us why the coronavirus can be detected in wastewater? Well, the short answer is that the virus infects your gut as well. You know, we usually talk about COVID-19 as being a respiratory disease and people having shortness of breath and severe pneumonia in certain cases, but it infects all different types of cells in your body, including the cells that line your intestine. So actually, diarrhea is one of the symptoms that some people with COVID-19 have. Uh, So in other words, if you're infected and you go to the restroom, you know, that virus that's in your gut is going to be passing through uh, your stool, through your your excrement as well. And so that's what researchers are detecting uh, in this latest report. And where does UC San Diego, where do they collect these wastewater samples? So they get them from the Point Loma Wastewater Treatment Plant. That's the facility in the county that processes wastewater for about two-thirds of San Diegans. Essentially, that's what they've been getting their samples from and doing their analysis on since July of 2020. How did the research team detect Delta and Omicron variants in the viral load? I mean, doesn't that usually take longer, take a week or so? Right. So usually you would need genetic sequencing to know what variant you're looking at. And that was one of the issues that UCSD was dealing with late Friday evening, because they had seen just that overall levels of virus were you know, shockingly high, but they didn't know if that had to do with Omicron, if it had to do with Delta, if it had to do with both, if there was something else going on there. And they didn't want to wait you know, a week or two for the sequencing to, to come through. So instead, they relied on a different specific molecular test that can distinguish one variant from another. So they've used this in the past to distinguish alpha from delta and are now using it to separate delta from Omicron. So they were able to do some experiments actually pretty early Saturday morning. You know, folks ran into the lab and were able to run some quick tests to see that it was both the delta variant, which has been circulating for a while, and the relatively new Omicron variant. So uh, Dr. Robert Knight actually was talking about this as sort of a two-pronged pandemic at this point where you've got these two variants that are spreading pretty quickly in our community. What's the length of time between detecting virus in wastewater and perhaps seeing a wave of people actually getting sick? The folks I spoke with at UCSD said it's typically about a week or two. Uh, it can be up to three weeks in advance where you can see that much of a lag between a wastewater peak in virus and actual infections coming through. So that would roughly mean that sometime around early January, the start of the new year, we would expect to see cases go up in a pretty pretty significant way. What are the researchers at UCSD advising San Diegans to do about this? You know, they're saying if you're not vaccinated, that you absolutely need to be. And we have about 400,000 folks in San Diego who are eligible for a vaccine but have yet to get one. They're saying that if you are vaccinated but haven't gotten a booster, that you need that too, based on the data that's coming out on Omicron and on the power of boosters and giving you a higher level of protection against that variant. So there probably are many other folks who could get a booster at this point who haven't done that. Uh, And then one of the other things they're saying is that regardless of who you are, uh, think carefully during the holidays about going to big indoor gatherings where people are unmasked. And then, you know, Chris Longhurst at UCSD uh, added an additional note, which was really to test, test, test. So if you are feeling any kind of symptoms, if you're planning on traveling, if you're planning on going to gatherings, if you think that testing might be a good idea, 
uh, then go ahead and do that because that's going to allow us to get a better handle on what's going on in the weeks ahead. I've been speaking with San Diego Union-Tribune biotech reporter Jonathan Wozen. Jonathan, thanks. Anytime. In 2019, San Diego unveiled its Climate Equity Index. The index essentially ranks all the city's neighborhoods based on access to opportunity and the risks of being harmed by climate change. It's meant to guide city decision-making so the communities on the front lines of the climate crisis get help first. But the tool is far from perfect, as explained in a recent article by Voice of San Diego environment reporter Mackenzie Elmer, who joins us now. Mackenzie, welcome to the program. Thanks, Andrew. Good to be here. Can you start off by reminding us what the San Diego Climate Equity Index is and what purpose does it serve? The Climate Equity Index is supposed to help the city identify, as you very accurately put it before, uh, communities that are historically disadvantaged and also worst impacted by climate change in the future and now. And how does that apply to actual decision making? So lots of governments, including the state of California, have created tools like this to try to help funnel extra money, extra support to those communities to help them mitigate and prepare for those impacts of climate change. We're talking like extreme heat, drought, sea level rise is one as well, all those sorts of things that we hear about. Tell us about the inputs. What are the variables that this index considers when analyzing any given neighborhood? So the city of San Diego decided to create their own unique climate equity index. The state has its own uh, as well. Um, So the city of San Diego actually has 41 different uh, inputs or indicators that it uses, everything from age to income, poverty burden, to different types of pollution, a neighborhood's proximity to something like hazardous waste or a landfill to actual like climate indicators like extreme heat, urban heat island, tree coverage, and sea level rise as well. And in what ways has this tool actually helped communities since it was first introduced? So 2022 will be the first time, I believe, that we will see the city actually use the Climate Equity Index to funnel money towards a community. So that will be the first time that the index is actually used in that way. And the city recently created a climate equity fund to basically kind of like a savings bank to put extra dollars for those types of investments in these communities that need it most. And there's about $5 million in that right now to spend in 2022. And the city has already selected those projects that will move forward. Can you give us examples of some projects that that fund would would put money towards? Yeah. So the city has a list of projects like um, there's some bicycle facilities, bike lanes, um, street lights, and traffic signals in areas like Linda Vista. Um, there's a, the Choyas Creek Oak Park Trail. Um, there's also part of University Avenue would get some money to do a complete street. Um, and there's some money going to different parks around the community. But I haven't yet uh, specifically mapped all those out to see how they layer over the actual climate equity index itself. And that's important because when I talk with the city, I wanted to, I asked specifically, you know, is it only these communities of concern that you identify through your climate equity index that can actually receive this funding? And it's not so cut and dry. The city's operating on this idea that a richer community that maybe isn't as impacted by climate change 
could uh, potentially get some climate equity funding to build something like a bike lane that might connect a park in that richer area to a poorer area, for instance. So that could be considered a climate equity project as well. It doesn't necessarily only put in these different neighborhoods that are identified by the tool. Your story zooms in on the community of Nestor and how that neighborhood represents some ways in which this climate equity index might actually be falling short. Can you tell us more about that? So Nestor is a community that's just east of Imperial Beach. Um, it's a place that if you ask people from Nestor, they're often frustrated that people in San Diego don't know where Nestor is, but it's a smaller neighborhood. Neighborhood, And it rose to my attention because between the city's original climate equity index tool in 2019 and the update that they made and released in 2021, that community actually became ineligible for funding technically under the, the climate equity index. Uh, the city identified it as a place of moderate access to opportunities or moderate, you know, community of concern to um, one that was considered um, higher access to opportunity. So I was interested in why that changed. And then I compared that to another community nearby, um, just east of Nestor called Ocean View Hills. And it's uh, has a much higher uh, median income. There are much um, the, the cost of housing is much higher. It's a much richer area. There's a lot of new developments over there. And I was curious because that community actually became eligible for funding under the update. So when you go on the ground, you know, boots on the ground in these neighborhoods, you can start to see why this is so difficult to actually have the data reflect maybe what's actually happening on the ground in the communities and whether the tool is accurately identifying ones that are maybe more disadvantaged than others. And so when looking at the community of Nestor versus Ocean View Hills, Ocean View Hills seem to be located in a census tract, an area that's near pollution like a landfill, the Otay Mesa landfills nearby. There's a lot of sort of old car lots. It's near an, an airport. The Montgomery Airport is down there. And so even though that community is, the people living there are doing much better or more well off than Nestor, it seems that perhaps those pollution indicators have perhaps incorrectly identified that neighborhood as more in need of extra support from the government versus Nestor, which is older, generally has a lower income rate and everything kind of the opposite of Ocean View Hills in general. Mackenzie, as we're looking ahead to trying to provide extra help to these communities that are most at risk of climate change, what limitations do you see with using data and numbers uh, and, and things like this climate equity index in actually trying to guide those decisions? Well, if you talk with uh, anyone in kind of the climate justice or climate equity space, they're often frustrated by, you know, just the use of data to try to spit out the correct answer when it comes to trying to identify where in the city might need most support. It's usually sort of obvious, I would say, in in some regards, like people know the areas of town probably that need more help than others. Um, I talked to another researcher that I quoted in the story from the Luskin Center, uh, who studies a lot of these tools. And he said that most of these tools and most of this data will spit out probably 60% of the right communities that uh, should be identified and that are facing adverse impacts from climate change more than others and have you know, poor residents who don't have the means to support themselves through those challenges. Um, so I think what it really takes is a lot of uh, ground truthing, meaning you know, going on the ground, getting advocates out there and uh, verifying that these neighborhoods are the ones that indeed deserve uh, or need this kind of support. So it, it kind of kind of need data paired with um, real world reality based uh, understanding of the actual neighborhood itself. 
I've been speaking with Voice of San Diego environment reporter Mackenzie Elmer. Mackenzie, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Hey, hey, hey. This is Parker Edison, host of the Parker Edison Project on KPBS. The cool thing about joining KPBS is you make one simple donation, and that money ripples into supporting everything else you see and hear on KPBS, including podcasts like this one you're listening to right now, making a place for fresh voices and perspectives to be heard. And that's music to my ears. Become a member today. Just go to kpbs.org, click that blue Give Now button, and donate what you can. All right? Thanks. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Andrew Bowen with Maureen Cavanaugh. Jade Heineman has the day off. San Diego could build a new trolley line to the airport in the next decade. That's the conclusion of a new feasibility study released by the Metropolitan Transit System last week. Many newcomers to San Diego wonder why the trolley doesn't go to the airport already. It comes tantalizingly close. The tracks run just a few hundred feet from the airport's outer boundaries. So what has to happen in order for this project to actually get done? Joining me to discuss is Colin Parent, executive director of the nonprofit think tank Circulate San Diego. Colin, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks, Andrew, for having me. It seems like connecting the trolley to the airport has been on San Diego's to-do list for a really long time. So what new information is in this feasibility study that we didn't know before? Yeah, so I think there's really two things, Andrew, for this. One is that the feasibility study really fundamentally just shows that there is no technical reason why we can't make this connection with the trolley. So there's no there's no fatal flaw in the idea. But I think perhaps more importantly, it's not the, the study itself, but the action by the MTS board last week that said, not only are we going to accept this study, but we're actually going to make it a project in our capital improvement program and make it a priority for the agency to complete. MTS already has a bus line that goes to the airport. I've used it myself. Uh, It's not great, but it could be made a lot better if maybe it had its own bus lane and didn't have to mix with the regular traffic, all the cars going to the airport. What is better about an actual rail line to the airport as opposed to a much cheaper option of just improving the bus connection? Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, the the bus connection is really great, that 992. um, And and MTS and the airport authority actually just started a a new bus connection for for commuters coming in from the Old Town Station. So I, I think it's important to understand that you know, there's probably there really needs to be multiple ways to use transit to access the airport. Uh, trolley the airport's a great one, but we also should be investing, continuing to invest in those kinds of surface street uh, improvements. And so, yeah, absolutely, there should be some bus only facilities um, uh, for the airport um, to make those those lines uh, work even better. But I think the, the 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 other advantages around rail and a rail connection is that even in a best case scenario, a bus does mean that people are going to have to lug um, you know, luggage up some stairs and and that kind of thing. And a, and a rail connection uh, is oftentimes easier to do that kind of stuff. And so that's that's a big, uh, big reason to make that improvement. But then the other thing is that uh, a rail connection just it, it just is more appealing to more people. And there's I think there's really something valuable in in designing our transit system that has a real sort of broad appeal. 
And so we shouldn't shy away from making improvements that, that really do excite people. Let's talk about the options here. MTS is talking about three of them in this study. One is an elevated track along Laurel Street, and two options would go underground. So which one does MTS prefer and why? Yeah, so right now it looks like MTS has a preference to do one of those undergrounding options, one that has a, just a, a single connection from uh, south of the airport going uh, under some other tracks and, and on, on toward the airport uh, along Harbor Drive. Uh, but, you know, there, there is, uh, there's going to be a lot more uh, technical and engineering work that's going to have to go in to, um, to doing a project like this. And so I think it's, it's, not, it's not decided exactly the routing or exactly the mechanism. So I think it's still very much on the table whether or not it's going to be underground or, or above grade. And, and really, I think right now, still a variety of options are on the table. Earlier studies were examining a rail connection that started not in Little Italy south of the airport, but north of the airport at the Navwar facility in the Midway District. The Navy, of course, is planning on redeveloping that property. Why does that idea of a connection from the north side seem to be falling out of fashion? Well, that idea of using the Navar facility as the primary way to connect transit to the airport is actually like a pretty new idea. It's only been on the table for a few years, uh, and it's not a surprise to me at all that that is, uh, you know, fallen out of favor because it really didn't make a lot of sense on its face. Most of the transit riders in the region live uh, south of the airport. Most of the people who work at the airport. Uh, live south of the airport. It just didn't make a lot of sense to make transit riders go north of the airport and then to the Navor area and then double back in order to be able to access the airport. That's something that Circulate San Diego has raised uh, over the last few years. It made you know some substantial criticism of of that proposal from Sandag, and now Sandag seems to have come to its senses and is looking at a route that makes more ordinary sense for most potential riders. Let's talk numbers. So how much would this new trolley airport connection cost and how could it be financed? Yeah, so the agency is, is looking at um, a couple of different options. And I think in their in their presentation to the board last week, they were looking at a couple of options of between 1.5 uh, and 2.5 billion. And um, so those are and those, you know, those are there's about a billion difference. Right. And um, so, you know, really, the cost dif- differential depends on on a variety of things, in particular, like how much of the project needs to be undergrounded? Is it going to be at grade or above grade? Um, and then, of course, there's just also some unknowns. Um, and so the, the financing is probably going to come from a variety of sources. Uh, one key source is that the airport, when they uh, uh, enhanced their, when they decided to move forward with their Terminal 1 expansion, they committed uh, a half billion dollars in uh uh, revenues from passenger fees to improve transportation. And so some share of that half billion is going to be available for a transit connection. That was a big win for the region. It was something that Circulate San Diego advocated for. And so that could that could take a big chunk out of, um, out of a project like this. But then we can also be looking for uh, funding from the new federal infrastructure bill. And then finally, there's likely to be uh, uh, some votes before the voters in the San Diego region to finance transportation improvements, maybe as soon as uh, this fall. And those kinds of local revenues can also be brought um, to support and to build this uh, this popular project. What has to happen for this idea of bringing the trolley to the airport to move to the next phase? 
Yeah. So a, a couple of things. I mean, first of all, the the, the board at uh, MTS made a really important decision last week where they said, listen, we, we like this project. We're going to put this, add this to our capital improvement uh, uh, list, essentially the, the list of capital projects that they want to see get built. And so now the, the next step is the agency uh, has to sort of look for additional grants, additional funding opportunities. Uh, they have to. They probably are looking very keenly on on whether or not the uh, voters approve this uh, transportation ballot measure that uh, is likely to be before the voters in um, in the fall. Uh, but then they're also going to need to get some buy-in from their uh, their partners at Sandag, the the other uh, regional transportation planning agency. But I have some pretty strong confidence that if the the board of MTS, which has a bunch of elected officials from around the region, say, "Yeah, this is what we want." And the polling all shows that the voters are excited about this kinds of project that the Sandag is going to do the right thing and incorporate into their plans as well. I've been speaking with Colin Parent, executive director of the nonprofit Circulate San Diego. He's also a member of the La Mesa City Council. Colin, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me, Andrew. Latino, Hispanic, Latinx, Chicano, There are so many different ways to express one's Latinidad. Race and equity reporter Christina Kim spoke with community members in June about the different ways they identify and how they feel about the term Latinx. The way people choose to identify is always changing, especially when it comes to defining Latinidad or anyone of Latin American descent here in the United States. At KPBS, we're now using the term Latinx, which is a non-binary way of saying Latino or Latina, in an effort to be as inclusive as possible. But we know it's not definitive and has proved controversial, because how we identify and are identified by others can get, well, personal. That's something UC San Diego professor Ariana Ruiz, who teaches about Latinidad, knows all too well. It's the politics of labeling, and with that politics, of course, our conversations around race, sexuality, gender, all of those components come into play. So that is something that, again, it's so personal that it is one that is emotive. Which is why we asked you, our listeners, to share how you identify and your thoughts on the X in Latinx. We got almost 200 responses, and they showed how deeply many of you are thinking about this multi-layered issue. Some, like Priscilla Vidal, who identifies as non-binary, embraced the term Latinx years ago. For me, I just don't identify as male or female. I feel like very gender neutral. And so the whole term Latinx kind of feels like that. But it also feels like it's its own movement. Others, like Rodrigo Tapia of Chula Vista, prefer terms like Hispanic or Latino because they connect him with his roots as a Spanish speaker. He understands the need to be inclusive, but thinks Latinx erases his connection with Spanish, which he grew up speaking. It, it, it listens a little bit of whitewashing insofar as the language is concerned. To me, Latino or Latina or even Latinx means that you're identifying with a culture that holds Spanish, you know, in a special place. Another Tulavistan, Michael Nzunza, also doesn't use the X. He prefers the term Chicano, a political identity label often associated with Mexican-Americans that emerged in the 1960s during the civil rights movement. Like Tapia, he thinks Latinx is a term imposed by white people. I've never heard anyone use it. I've never heard anyone identify with it. And uh, it's just a term, I don't know if it's going to stick or not, but it's not from us. And that's a big tension point. Where did Latinx even come from? Professor Ruiz says that's a difficult question. 
So there is no one origin story. Uh, the X is one that is discussed as coming out of indigenous communities throughout Latin America. It's one that we've seen used within Latin American feminist circles as well. When we're talking about Latin X within the U.S., the X is really functioning there to mess with gender binaries. Because of the lack of clarity about when people started using Latinx, people have their own interpretations and understandings about it. Alejandra Lucero Canan identifies as queer, Latinx, and Chicanx. And unlike Inzuzna and Tapia, doesn't see Latinx as a colonized label coming from outside the community. She likes using the X because it makes people stop and think about who has been ignored. The X makes me think of the people that are not often included in these conversations, non-binary people, Afro-Latinos or Afro-Chicanos, and people with disabilities. In the end, there isn't a single definition or understanding of any of these identity labels. But Ruiz says that's a good thing. And so really we want to think about it as embracing the tension, really leaning into the messiness that is a term like Latinx, like Latino, this question of Latinidad. It's not one singular thing, but one that is much more multifaceted and has lots of different histories and experiences tied to it. Christina Kim, KPBS News. Join us tomorrow for a special rebroadcast of the KPBS Community Conversation that covers the controversy over the term Latinx. That's tomorrow at noon here on KPBS-FM. Public radio programs attract educated consumers and business decision makers. You can reach this highly desirable audience with your company's marketing message on KPBS. Isn't it time to make our listeners your customers? Find out how by calling 619-594-5715 today. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Andrew Bowen. Jade Heineman is on vacation. The holidays are in full swing and Christmas is upon us. And with all the rushing and wrapping going on, it can be hard to get those last few perfect gifts for the people on your list. Luckily, San Diego is home to some great independent bookstores. And we thought we'd check in with a few of them to get their book recommendations for those last minute gifts. First up, we hear from Seth Marco, co-owner of the book Catapult in South Park. You know, a couple of my favorite books for the year have been um, Anthony Doerr's Cloud Cuckoo Land, which has become a huge bestseller. It's his follow-up to his Pulitzer Prize winner, All the Light We Cannot See. Cloud Cuckoo Land has a weird title, but it's um, <laughs> it's just a great story about, you know, it's kind of the preservation of, of story. You know, it's about libraries and their importance in society. He has sort of a, a way of telling a story that, connects all these different characters together through over time. I mean, I mean, this one is, you know, some of it is set in the siege of Constantinople in the 1400s. And then there's a contemporary storyline. And then there's another story that's, you know, far in the future. And they all connect together um, where he's kind of shows the, you know, the, the thin threads that connect people. One of my other favorite books this year, also fiction, is by Lauren Groff called Matrix, which is not gotten quite the attention that I, I thought it would. I mean, she's pretty well known. She's, a I think, a two-time National Book Award finalist now for her last couple of books. And this is historical fiction set in the 12th century. And it's about this woman who is 
in Eleanor of Aquitaine's court and is, you know, sort of rejected by the court and sent to live in a nunnery in the English countryside where she becomes the abbess of this nunnery and, and turns it into this sort of feminist utopia. It's a really, really well-told story, just beautiful language, but such a compelling character really surprised me. It's been one of my favorite, favorite books to talk about this year, for sure. That's just a couple that, that I've really liked. There's, there's many more. <laughs> that was Seth Marco, co-owner of the book Catapult, which is located at 3010B Juniper Street in South Park. His picks again were Cloud Cuckoo Land by Anthony Doerr and The Matrix by Lauren Groff. Next, we move to Mysterious Galaxy, where store manager Kelly Orazi has a few of her picks from the sci-fi fantasy genre. So one of my favorite middle grade books to come out this year, just was published a couple months ago, is The Last Quintista by Donna Barbara Hiera. It is a beautiful, thought-provoking science fiction novel where the main character is one of the lucky few humans who's chosen to embark on humanity's last spaceship before the comet destroys Earth. Um, So she and a select few are put into stasis. They're meant to wake up 400 years in the future en route to a brand new planet and carry on the human race. But when the main character wakes up, uh, she's the only one who has memories of Earth at all. Uh, And she longs to share and protect the stories of Earth. So it's a great mystery um, what's happening and who's really behind all of the missing memories, while also a captivating insight to this main character who just wants to share the history of Earth through storytelling. It's pulse-racing science fiction, but it's also a heart-wrenching testament to the power of storytelling, and I just adore this book. The next book that I want to recommend is Under the Whispering Door by T.J. Klune. It's one of my favorite books of the year. I love T.J. Klune. He wrote The House in the Cerulean Sea last year, and it was my one of my favorite, favorite books. It got me through the pandemic. And Under the Whispering Door is about a man who dies and goes to a sort of in-between afterlife. It's not heaven, it's not hell. And the person who's waiting for him is sort of a ferryman who guides souls onto the ultimate afterlife. And it's their story of getting to know one another and actually falling in love, which is quite beautiful. And it's a story that makes you think, it's a story that makes you laugh, and you just can't help but root for everybody involved. I adore this book. Another book is called Legendborn by Tracy Dion. Uh, It has magic, demons, and a centuries-old secret society founded by King Arthur. It has themes of and questions about family and country and trauma and duty. And it, of course, has plenty of love and plenty of magic. That was Kelly Orazi of Mysterious Galaxy Books, located at 3555 Rosecrans Street in San Diego. Kelly's picks, again, were The Last Quintista by Donna Barriguera. Under the Whispering Door by T.J. Clune and Legendborn by Tracy Dion. I have so many books, you're going to tell me to probably stop. <laughs> That's bookseller Marianne Reiner of La Playa Books in Point Loma. Here are her picks. I have uh, The Sentence by Louise Erdrich, and this one is a really great book because it takes place actually in a small indie bookstore in Minneapolis. And the bookstore is haunted by Flora, one of its most annoying customers who died and won't leave the store. 
And Tuki, the bookseller, must solve the mystery of this hunting. And the book takes place during the month of November 2019 and November 2020. So it's also obviously a really high pressure time in the Minneapolis area. And Tuki must also come to terms with a year of grief and isolation and reckoning in her city. Another one I really loved and we have also in the stores called Oh Beautiful by Jong Yoon. It's the story of Eleanor Henson, a former model who's about 40 and she's struggling to reinvent herself as a freelance writer. And that is until she's sent for an assignment to the Bakken region of North Dakota, where the oil boom is drastically changing the landscape and the people who live there. And Eleanor is sent there for a lot of reasons, but also because she grew up in that region as uh, the child of a a mixed couple. Her father was American and her mother was Korean. And this story is bringing her back and she discovers a lot more than the story she has to write for her magazine article. I'm putting it on my list for everyone I know and love. Last but not least, I have a favorite current picture book for children called Dream Street. And this is by Trisha L.M. Walker and Ikua Holmes. And this is a beautiful story where we're presented with a lot of people who live on that street and their stories and how they interact with each other. And the illustrations are absolutely stunning. I highly encourage everyone to go look for this book because it's one of those books that you want to keep. La Playa Books is located at 1026 Rosecrans Street in Point Loma. Marianne's picks again were The Sentence by Louise Erdich, Oh Beautiful by Jung Yoon, and the picture book Dream Street by Trisha Ellen Walker, illustrated by Aqua Holmes. If you missed any of these book picks, you can find them on our website at kpbs.org. Cinema Junkie continues to explore the diverse array of women in film noir with part two of Noir Dames. Podcast host Beth Accomando and guest Nora Fiore, the nitrate diva, go beyond the usual suspects of the femme fatale to discuss the lady sleuth, the redeeming angel, and the glamorous victim. In this excerpt from the podcast, they look to the long-suffering wife of film noir. Marriage is not always a hallowed institution in film noir. In fact, it's often threatened by infidelity or scorned by people who see little cause to respect society's norms. So we don't often see a married couple at the heart of a noir, but Nora does perceive a category of characters that she calls the long-suffering wife, like Colleen Gray in Nightmare Alley. I knew it! You knew what? You never were on the level! You lied to me. Zeta was right. Walking out on me, huh? Look, Stan, anytime you want to go back into show business... <laughs> yeah, you and all that talk of yours about love. You were going to be such a good wife to me. I've tried to be. 
Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of cases, it, the suffering wife I see as a character who is often there with her husband, but, you know, in contrast to the femme fatale leading a man astray, oftentimes the suffering wife, it's interesting because I find a lot of the um fatale characters, they're not free agents like the femme fatale. They're often husbands. They're often these charming spouses who kind of hook some good woman into their life. And maybe there the wife becomes complicit. Maybe the wife is just now trapped in this situation. I mean, I, I guess you, this, this bleeds into some of the other categories we talked about, but, you know, one I think about a lot is the suffering wife is Colleen Gray in Nightmare Alley, where, you know, she's suckered into Tyrone Power's racket. I mean, who wouldn't be? And, you know, she's she goes along with him to a certain point, but she does resist him. She does, you know, kind of try to talk to him. And there's a great conversation where she says, you know, you're talking like you're God. There's nothing to worry about. There's no difference between this and, and mentalism. It's just another angle of show business. Wait a minute, mister. You're not talking to one of your chumps. You're talking to your wife. You're talking to somebody who knows you red, white, and blue. And you can't fool me anymore. There's only one way I can stop you from doing this thing. And that's to leave you. I think their relationship is really fascinating, where even though she is so clearly the submissive partner in that relationship, you know, she still has the guts to speak up to him and to say something to him. I remember think Colleen Gray is just a tremendously underrated actress. She also is wonderful as kind of a redeeming angel character in Kiss of Death, you know, with, with Victor Mature. I inquired of the police and I found out that, well, they sent me to a place and I found out they're all right. You saw the kids? Yes. And they're all right? Oh, yes, they look swell. So, I mean, definitely the wife figure, you know, I I think a lot of this probably comes out of Gaslight, you know, which was just Ingrid Bergman won her Oscar for it. But you do see that a lot. You see a lot of in in noir and noir adjacent movies and movies kind of part of the noir movement. You do see a lot of women who are being abused and exploited by their partners, which is partially why I debate this charge against noir that it's misogynistic. Because frankly, I think noir is very sympathetic to the many bad situations that life can pull women into and how hard it is for them to escape those situations once they are in them. Um, You know, I think for every femme fatale there is a noir, there is a terrible (laughs) husband. There are just so many like evil, abusive, manipulative husbands in film noir. Remember me? I'm Gilda, your wife. This vacuum I'm living in. Mind giving me a reason? Not at all. You've had such a full life up to now, I thought a little peace and quiet would do you good. Give you time to think. Think about what? Would it be too corny to say your sins? Yes, it would. Well, I said it. Well, when you mentioned this category, which I hadn't thought about, I thought of the film Reckless Moment, which is not so much the Mm. suffering wife as maybe the long-suffering mother. And this is where, like, noir kind of crosses into the women's melodrama of, uh, like, Douglas Sirk. This was Max Ophel's, but this sense of you know, she's so suburban and she's so like she ta- she runs the house, she takes care of the kids, she manages the budget while the husband's away. And, you know, in this particular film, she has to deal with blackmail and murder. B, B, where were you? What's the matter? What happened? B, B, down, down. Who was it? It was Jim. I, 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 Where is he now? I don't know. I love him. You go on upstairs. I'll be up in a minute. 
So it's like she seems very constrained by these domestic duties, and yet she's thrown into a situation kind of out of her depth, but she still manages... You know, she's like doing her budget to figure out how to pay blackmail. You know, it's like if I say, <laughs> and she can't get a loan because it's all in her <laughs> yeah. husband. It's that film is so tense. I mean, that scene where she's trying to get a loan and and just you can tell it's not going to work out for her. The way all the minutia of her life become this chain that makes it all the more challenging for her to fix this problem. You know, it's kind of the typical issue of just I got to get the money, I got to pay off the blackmailer. Which you know, for a man, he could do that in a day. All of these obstacles stand her way, and, and the way Ophel's films it with all the, the tracking shots and the way she's constantly in motion and bouncing from place to place, the simplest thing becomes this huge, bigger mess for her to clean up because of the prison of her respectability. It's going to be hard for me to go to Los Angeles and get the money. I, I promised Father and David the car tomorrow. If I want it, there'll be questions. I've been to Los Angeles once this week. That means more questions. You don't know how how a family can surround you at times. No, I don't. I have to have time to think. I can't just get the money like like that. She loves her family, and the family that she is going through all this for is such a constraint on her ability to solve this problem. That, that is just a tremendous performance from Joan Bennett, uh, just a real, I think, underrated noir dame. I mean, I don't know. It's, it's hard to call Joan Bennett underrated because she does still loom so large. She's so incredible in Scarlet Street. But again, another one of these women who can inhabit, you know, multiple kinds of roles within noir. You know, she could be the femme fatale. She'd be the mother. She could be, you know, kind of more the woman in peril, like in Secret Beyond the Door. Uh, so she's just, uh, she's tremendous in the reckless moment. I mean, her, her tension and her frustration and the combination of grace and yet the the fear you can see under the surface it grabs you by the throat it's just astonishing i feel like that film just is still a little underseen given how how phenomenal it is and you know the mother is is i do think maybe a little bit less a part of noir than than you might expect like you said it's kind of more the realm of melodrama but of course mildred pierce i mean Mm -hmm. you know on the absolute borderland of noir or melodrama whichever one you want to call it it is that and you know joan crawford as the classic maternal figure and how dark is that she's not only exploited by her husband another one of the bad husband noirs i can't do it with you i'll do it without you oh so now we're getting down to the point you're looking for an excuse to heave me out in my ears that is well i'm fed up let's see you get along without me for a while when you want me you know where to find me bert you go down to that woman's house again and you're never coming back here i mean that oh i go where i want to go then pack up bert She's also exploited by her child in this, you know, tremendously insidious way. Well, Nora, I want to thank you so much for uh, talking about the noir dames and hopefully opening people's eyes to the wide diversity of women that exist within the film noir world. I'm, I'm happy to be able to have talked about it with you. Thank you so much for having me on. That was Beth Accomando speaking with Nora Fiore, the nitrate diva, about one of the overlooked categories of women in film noir. To hear their full discussion, go to kpbs.org slash cinema junkie.